welcome. I invite you to just notice your next breath. You may want to silently say to yourself, as you notice your breath, now I am breathing in, now I am breathing out. So if you're here for the first time, welcome. We have a, a short chant that we sing together before we go into our affirmative prayer and then our lesson. And so don't feel any performance anxiety or need to participate. It's an organic thing that we grow into. In this very room there's quite enough love for all the world and in this very room there's quite enough joy for all the world and there's quite enough love and quite enough power to walk through our every fear spirit one spirit is in this very room in this very And I invite you to know with me, allowing my words to be your words. And if not, let them wash over you. I affirm and know and decree that there is one life, and that life is God's life. That life is Spirit's life. That is the source of all things and all of the qualities that we can think of that identify that life. Love, beauty joy, genius, possibility. And so I just give thanks beforehand. I give thanks for this day. I think give thanks for the, the groundedness and the sacredness of this moment for us because it is our opportunity to affirm and decree that. Every step we take is a sacred step if we take it with the mindfulness and the awareness and the grace and beauty of the truth of our being. And so I give thanks for all the blessings, for all the support, all the resources, all the volunteers this day that are in service to this community, to one another, and truly to be a service to spirit, to God. And that by God, I mean this principle of life, both male and female, the vibration of the Most High. So I release these words in gratitude and appreciation and invite you to say with me, and so it is. Good morning, good morning. So we've been working with um, Benjamin Zanders, The Art of Possibility, and I know many of you have the book. And, and some of you, I think, do we get new books in? Do we get more books in? Monday, I'm told, Monday. But we have a couple more weeks to go, and we've been preparing ourselves as a community. We've been doing some rituals over the past. Uh, many of you were here for the burning bowl ceremony. Um, and so uh, I brought the bowl back out today, and it's actually filled with water. 
And the reason that it's filled with water is in many of the, the sacred and ancient healing traditions upon the planet, water is always present in the room because what the water will do is absorb some of the energy that is being lifted and shifted and moved. In fact, in our, in our crystal bedroom, there's always, we're, we're instructed to leave a, a small bowl of water out that will help absorb some of the energy because with water, water will, is very, water, I mean, if we look at the earth and look at who we are, we're 70% water, something like that, a huge percentage of us, the, the oceans, all of the water upon the planet. And isn't it interesting that the oceans continue to cleanse as the waves break? upon the shore, they, they, there's a cleansing activity. Well, water is a very permeable and, and uh, available um, uh, substance to absorb energy. And so, as you're here today, it gives us a focal point. It gives us an awareness. So as you're here today, an awareness is bubble up, and hopefully they are. Or if it's during the week, you can still come back to this moment and just give it to the water. Because the water will take it and absorb it and purify it and cleanse it for us. Because all of, the, all of the energy that has ever been on the planet, and this is hard science, all of the energy that we've ever had, all of the water that we've ever had, all of the, and all of the, 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 the things that exist now, none of it has increased or decreased. What happens is it continues to cycle through and be transformed. And this is our opportunity as well for transformation. So the, the water today is a, represents our opportunity to cleanse or to release or to give back to source that which no longer serves us. Not to give it to one another, not to give it back. If someone has hurt you, not to give the pain back to them, but to give it back to source so that it can be transformed into something beautiful. So leading from any chair uh, is inspired by one of the chapters in Benjamin Zanner's book. And there's a bunch of chairs. doesn't matter what chair we're in. We all have an opportunity to lead. So I want to talk a bit, a bit about some of the, the, the qualities and things that uh, he expresses in this uh, chapter in the book and of course the next slide is a picture of Benjamin leading from the chair he's a conductor he's a, a, a symphony conductor and uh, he's worked for years in a number of capacities he's very well known he's very renowned and so he tells the story about conductors so conductors I think are a great example of one of the traps that we can fall into so there was the mythical maestro Herbert von Karajan and he, there was one day he came out of the opera house in a big hurry and he walked up to the cab driver. And in fact, I've got a picture of the, I think, I don't know if that's the very cab driver, but it was probably something like that. He walked out and he said, driver, driver. He said, hurry, hurry. And then as he got in and the, closed the door and the driver said, very good, sir. And, and where are we going? And he said, well, it doesn't really matter because they need me everywhere. So the leader who fails, <clears throat> a leader who fails uh, who feels he is superior is likely to suppress the voices of the very people on whom he must rely to, li to deliver his vision alive and kicking. And of course, this, this, this immersion in music, uh, the music that he's done uh, and the mindset of, of uh, orchestral players in this symphony is quite interesting. So this idea of, and it's sort of the, the, one of the great examples of narcissism, you know, how important I am. And he tells the numbers. Toscanini was a, was a uh, famous, renowned conductor. And, and years ago, he fired his second bass. Just had enough. And so the second bass got up to pack his stuff. It was during a rehearsal, and everybody's watching, hundreds of people in the auditorium. And Toscanini's standing there, and the guy starts, <clears throat> the guy, the, the second bass starts telling Toscanini a number of things that he'd been withholding for a long time. And on his way out the door, he turned around, and he said, you, sir, are no good son of a bitch. And Tuscanini stood there and he said, it's too late to apologize. 
In fact, orchestral players, when they tested, didn't know this, but this is quite fascinating. They test at the level of job satisfaction just below prison guards. There they are. The guy on the left plays in the orchestra, and the guy on the right tests slightly above job satisfaction uh, to the... Uh, so what, what Benjamin realized, and so it shifted and changed over time. And part of the impact he's had in music and leadership on the planet is that he realized the shift for him was that, that, that the conductor derives his ability to make other people powerful. That's all that the conductor does. If, if people are not shining and, and, and playing it and performing at the top level of their game, what's the point? And so over, the, over time, this culture has become more compassionate and, and uh, not in all cases, I would imagine, but there's been an awakening of consciousness because it used to be the conductor was, you know, omnipotent, all-knowing, omnipotent, all-powerful. So Benjamin Zander realized <clears throat> that how effective I was at enabling the musicians to play each phrase as beautifully as they were capable. And so he had an incident when he was conducting, and he was a guest uh, conductor in the L London Philharmonic. And during a rehearsal, he was watching the, uh, watching the musicians, and of course, and, and at one point, um, he said to one of the, the, the percussion uh, group, he said, your cowbells didn't come in on time. And then he realized that in front of everybody, he told the percussion people this, and then he realized he'd made the mistake. So in front of everybody, he said, I'm sorry, I, I, I was the one that was in error. And he said, um, he didn't think that was a big deal, but it had been kind of his practice. Uh, throughout the years and he said the three people came up to him afterwards and said we have never had a conductor apologize to us for anything all the time we've been here and he thought that was quite remarkable what an what a insight into the culture so he started putting what he did is he started putting paper out on all the music stands and I couldn't find one with blank paper so I put one out there with with music paper on it but and what he asked people to do was he encouraged the musicians to write down any observations that might enable him to empower them to play the music. But he was really kind of gritting his teeth and waiting for the feedback because it had never been done before and he was worried about having to read it. You know, it's like, uh, hmm, what are they going to say? But he said it was quite remarkable. It was quite remarkable, the things that he read and the things, and some people had this vast knowledge in the, that were in part of the... Um, the orchestra, that he didn't have any clue because there was no communication. There was no one-on-one -on -one going back and forth. So this piece of paper, this blank paper, became uh, an opportunity for him to, to mine some of that, um, the valuable uh, imp, uh, interchange of information, exchange of information. In fact, there's a little, little um, paragraph here. He writes one of the people that, that participated in this, said, Mr. Zander, this is my first white sheet, the first blank sheet on the page. So this is my first white sheet sitting at the back of the cello section when I have always sat at the front. It was the hardest thing I've done in a long while. But over the nine days of our work together, I began to discover what playing in an orchestra was really about. And this, of course, is an incident where he's a guest conductor, a guest conductor but brings his practice to all of his uh, places as he's invited to, to uh, conduct and to teach and to mentor. Your shine has inspired me to believe that I have the force of personality to power the section from wherever I sit. And I believe that I led that concert from the 11th chair. Isn't that interesting empowerment of that we can lead? We can lead whatever chair we're sitting in, the mindset and the awareness. But he has empowered individuals and said, your, your opinion and what you have to share is valuable. 
I, wherever I sit, and I believe that I led the concert from the 11th chair. Thank you for helping me know that. From this day, I will be leading every section in which I sit, whichever seat. You know, I mean, whether we're in the first seat or not, I mean, it's really up to us. Are we leading in our lives? Are we, you know, we're, we live in such an incredible period of time where there's so much going on, so much change going on. And what is ours to do? And we real, when we realize, when we truly get how important each one of us is, how impactful each one of us is, and understand that and live from that, it, the energetic of what we share in the world is so much different. And you grow into that. You know, we, we all grow into that. It's, a, it's an ever greater yet to be. So he had them write down his observations and so they could play the, more, the music more beautifully. And then when, he, when they made him a suggestion, so someone would say, oh, I, I think this would be important at this phrase, this would be important. He would always make sure he made eye contact with them. And he said in that experience, because it's very difficult to, to, to once again, to have this, this intimate relationship with over 100 musicians, but he said that would become their moment, and he would look at them. And what an empowering thing to do in terms of communication, people, but it's a mindfulness that he brings. <clears throat> that moment becomes their moment. So he talks about um, Kosovetsky. Now, they, all these guys have all these, like, nine syllables in their name. You know, it's like, man, how do I say that one? Okay, I'll, I'll try and do that word again. Uh, but a uh, story of Kosovetsky. And Kosovetsky was, re, uh, was rehearsing one day, and finally he just said, you know, and he's relating this to another friend of his that played in a number of the orchestras that he had conducted. And this particular man was so revered. He was sort of a um, seminal presence. You know, it'd be like you and I starting a rock band and, and John Lennon played in it, you know? It'd be like, you know? So this guy would sit and play and all, and, and one day he just doesn't this, you know, I mean, how do you do this? He said, well, he said, you know, let me tell you my story. So he related this story to ben, Benjamin Zanner. He said, years ago, Kosovetsky, he was conducting and things weren't going as he'd like to and he had a guest there that was also a renowned conductor he said will you conduct while I go stand in the back of the room and I listen and pay attention I need to hear what's, how this sounds and so he did that and so this particular man and I don't recall his name this renowned cellist said um, I was there when that happened he said I've been waiting 44 years for someone else for it to happen again you know it's not real common but what Benjamin Zander realized, that, that he would be able to do that. He, you know, he realized that to invite somebody to come forward. And so he noticed one time when, when they were rehearsing, he had this young man in the violin section, had just this tremendous passion. It could, seemed to be all over the chair while he was playing. And, and he looked at him and he said, inspired by the story I just shared, he said, John, you come up here and conduct. I want to go to the back and hear how it sounds. And that day on his white sheet, he wrote that I enabled him to realize a lifelong dream. Suddenly, the full extent of the resources of the orchestra presented itself to my view, and I leapt to offer some of the other musicians the same gift. One wrote, I, was, I had been so critical of conductors, and now I see that what you do have to do is as demanding as playing an instrument. Others commented that this exercise had shifted the whole experience of playing in an orchestra from a passive one to, to one in which, like Lerner, which the story is based on, became active participants. So then another form of enrollment, inviting people to have a new experience, inviting people to be part of it and to look for those opportunities, which is quite, quite fascinating and, and um, inspiring. There's another story of when they went to Cuba with a youth orchestra, and they had sent this music ahead. But first they said that uh, they were trying to do a piece. 
he got there and they had the, the Cuban Youth Orchestra playing and they were playing some intricate patterns that, that the, the, the young musicians from the United States that had traveled down there just weren't able to get. And so he said, uh, I don't think we can do this. This isn't going to work. He said this to the Cuban uh, maestro. And he says, nonsense. He said, let's, have, the, let's uh, have them stand together. Let them partner at the stand. So he had these musicians partnering at the stand. And there's a picture of the young musicians playing, partnering at the stand and, and mentoring one another. And so the Cuban musicians taught the Americans how to play this particular passage in peace. And he said it was beautiful to watch. And it, and, and it, was, it came out lovely. And then he, he said, now it was my turn to, to get up and conduct. And I had sent music down three months earlier so that they could have the music and prepare. And he asked where it was. And they said, well, we never got it. It's still at the customs. You know how customs will do that sometimes? They will. They'll hold stuff. It's amazing. So he had no music. He said the blood drained from him. And he looked around and he realized that, let's try the same thing. And so they passed the music out. And here the young American musicians that had already practiced it taught the Cubans. And he said it was a beautiful way to, to watch leadership unfolding, how the mentoring. And so we're all leaders. As he, he says, he's referring to the monk story, or the monk goes to the monastery and they interact with the rabbi and the monastery's falling apart and the, the last thing the rabbi says to him is, remember when he was the Messiah, when he was the leader. The same idea. And he, he, res, he resorts to that in the, uh, <clears throat> in the, at the end of the story there. So, Benjamin Zanner says, transformation happens when you shift your view of the world. When you see what you have been doing is hiding, taking yourself away, not participating, not engaging, not taking risks, sitting in the back row of your life. And we've all done that. Anybody done that besides me? I've done that. Three people stuck their hand up. Cool. All right. Sweet. So here's a cartoon of a guy that's uh, an example of this. It says on the back of it as he's running along with the guys, trip me. Yeah, that'll give you an excuse not to participate. You know, how many of us running along here? I'm going this way with everybody. And by the way, if you get a chance, please trip me. Because this running is tiring. Or this next one, and I don't know if you can read it, so I'll read it for you. Here's a little pig, and I don't know what animal has its head already in the sand. But he says, what are you doing? And he says, well, life has overwhelmed me, so I have shoved my head into the sand. And in the second square, it says, why would you do that? And the fellow with his head in the sand says, because ignoring rea reality is the next best thing to changing it. And in the last slide, they both have their heads in the sand. And the, the pig says, this is the happiest day of my life. Mm -hmm. I couldn't resist those two. Because it's the norm. It's the norm to avoid. It's the norm to, to, de to deflect. It's the, nor it's the norm to scapegoat. It's not my fault, it's their fault. They did it to me. There's a wonderful poem that was translated by Robert Bly that I want to share with you. And it's, it's by a poet by the name of Jimenez. And it was translated, so I imagine it was translated out of Spanish or Portuguese. He says, I am not I. I am this one walking beside me whom I do not see. Whom at times I manage to visit. And whom at other times I forget. The one who remains silent when I talk. The one who forgives, sweet, when I hate. The one who takes a walk where I, am, where I am not. And the one who remains standing when I die. 
I think it's such a beautiful, beautiful bit of poetry about who we are, truly. We're not, we're not our bodies. We're not our minds. We're not our emotions. We're, we are our souls. And so how do we live more and more of that soulful, rich experience in life without being drawn and distracted in so many different directions but live a life, you know, Benjamin Zander, what his inspiration is he, he lives out such a purposeful life. He gives everyone an A. He assumes everyone has leadership in them. And then he, he operates from that perspective and it lifts everyone. But most of us don't do that. Most of us haven't had a lot of experiences with that. He told, you know, the beginning of the book was about survival. So we've, we've got our bowl of water. I want you to just think about that for a moment. What are you ready, willing to release? Maybe you don't know what it is, but to let this infinite divine intelligence do some of that for you and say, whatever is no longer necessary for me to hold within my body that's trapped within my energetics, whatever it may be, release it and I place it in the water. Because what we're doing is we're preparing ourselves. So the last Sunday of this month, I can let the cat out of the bag, we're going to do our white ceremony, white stone ceremony. And this is preparation for that. It's not just something, and I want to talk about why this is so, I think, can be so impactful and so important. Because what it requires, in, in, in most of our classes, I, I just began teaching the uh, Living My Life Purpose class on, on Thursday evening. And it's a wonderful curriculum. And so it's not people show up and say, okay, here's your life purpose, and here's your life purpose, and here's your life purpose. And, it's really about doing the small things that help shift us in awareness and consciousness so we can make ourselves more available to what truly is trying to find us and reveal itself through us. And see, this is a joyful thing. Isn't it great to know that we are so supported and resourced and we get stuck in managing and surviving and judging and blaming and shaming and acquiring and, and, and you know, dodging, whatever it may be. So we're going to, the last... Sunday of the month, I'm going to invite you. Everybody gets a white stone. And the white stone is the clean slate. Back in Roman times when you were released from prison, you were given a clean slate. You have paid your debt. You are free to do whatever you would like to do. And this is our, our, our white stone ceremony. And we'll have pins so you can write down your word. If you know your word, or you'll take it home and work with it. But you'll put your word down. But it's a commitment. A commitment is a pledge. Something that binds us emotionally and mentally to someone or something or a course of action. It's something that binds us. It is a marriage in a sense. It's a devotion to ourselves that I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a commitment to myself in a new way and when I find myself failing in my commitment, I, my commitment is to have the awareness to just come back to it, to just come back to it. So part of it is staying present. When I am triggered, so one of the beautiful things about being triggered, when I am triggered I, and, ask, and I know I'm triggered, to have the awareness when you're triggered and know you're triggered, that's a huge step. Most people just get triggered and run with the trigger. But all of a sudden they realize, geez, I'm triggered by this. What is the belief that is underlying this feeling I'm experiencing? What is the belief? It is done unto you as you believe. What is the belief that underlies the, the feeling that I'm having? And that's, that, is, that is rigorous spiritual practice. To be able to stop oneself and say, wow. Pima Chodron in her book, and I love Pima, she's out in the, the Maritime. She has a, um, I didn't realize it, but she has a, uh, I realize it now, she has a retreat center in the Maritimes where she lives. She wrote this. 
She said, I had a dream about my ex-husband. I was just settling down for a quiet evening at home when he arrived with six unknown guests and then disappeared, leaving me to take care of them. I was furious. And when I woke up, I thought ruefully, so much for being finished with anger. I guess the propensity is still there. And then I started to think about the incident that had occurred the previous day, and I began to get furious all over again. This completely stopped me in my tracks, and I realized that waking or sleeping is just the same. It isn't the content of our movie that needs our attention. It's the projector. It's the projector. It isn't the current storyline that's the root of our pain. It is our propensity to be bothered in the first place. But it's not. So what happens? Because things bother us. What do I do? Ah! You know, things aren't supposed to bother me. I'm supposed to be holy and, 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 and uh, spiritual and all this stuff. And it's, it bothers me. And so there's a path. Pima Chodron says this. Science is demonstrating every time we refrain but don't repress. Refrain but don't repress. You know when you're repressing? You want to say something to somebody, you want to do something, and you, oh, and there's all that energy about repression? That just, that just perpetuates it and gives it more energy, actually, it just builds. But science is demonstrating every time we refrain but don't repress, new neural paths, neural paths open up in the brain. In not taking old escape routes, we are predisposing ourselves to a new way of seeing ourselves, a new way of relating to the mysterious, unpredictable world we live in. So what a beautiful thing to know that each time we don't have to repress but refrain. So what, what I've been reading over the last week to prepare for this is, is these ideas that we don't have to face our biggest challenge where we're so charged. It's very hard to, to not repress when you, you want to do whatever it is uh, and, and you're so charged with life. But as they talk about starting small and doing it in small ways, so when I came in here today, I was, you know, I've been immersed in this material for days now, and I'm, I'm finding myself where I would start to place judgment or a strong opinion on whatever it may be that was coming across my field of awareness. And my meditation was a lot of things that weren't in the room. And I realized one of the practices Pima always talks about is to, to recognize, as the Buddhists would say, oh, I'm thinking. That's me thinking. But they label it. And what labeling does is it, it, it takes some of the charge off. Oh, there's me thinking. Oh, there's me judging. Oh, I'm starting to judge. Isn't that interesting? And you know what? I think I'm going to think about something else right now. And I have a little practice that I do when I'm really charged that helps me take me out of it. I take my, my thumb and my forefinger here and I just, I lightly touch it together and I breathe. And it might take me 30 seconds. It might take me a minute. It might take me 10 minutes. But eventually what happens is I can't think of anything else because I'm like, thinking about breathing and thinking about my finger touching together lightly. I find that practice so valuable because what it does is it takes me out of that rant that I can go into and that repression that I'm feeling. It's like, no, I'm not going to do that today. Why am I driven to do that? You know, why, am I, why do I want to uh, escape into my old pattern? But to, to see very clearly when, they're about to, when I'm about to exit. So what, what is your exit strategy? And what is my exit strategy? Is it to zone out in front of the TV? Or to compulsively uh, check emails? I've got to check another email. i better check my phone. I mean, we are, technologically, we are geared perfectly for distraction. Has anybody here checked their phone a couple times while I've been talking to see if anybody's trying to get a hold of them? I mean, I do it. No. You know, I mean, I, I don't do it as much, but I've done it. 
See, we don't do private confession. We just do them right out in the front of everybody. <laughs> you know, drinking alcohol. How much alcohol as a, as a numbing and as an exit? I'm going to, uh, you know, or overeating, overworking, mindless chatter. Anybody use that practice? Mindless chatter? I've been running around anybody doing mindless chatter, and after a while, I was like, oh my gosh, holy cow. I'm just amazed. And, you know, talk about cell phones. It's, and, and so, huge spiritual practice. If I'm stuck in a room like a doctor's office or a dentist's office, and someone is on their cell phone having a very large, loud conversation, it's fascinating the triggers that go off for me. It's like, wow, I didn't know I was going to be part of this conversation today. And mentally, we are engaged in almost constant conversation with ourselves. What the Buddhists say is to commit, the commitment is to refrain from harmful speech and actions. The path to liberation begins with refraining from hurting ourselves and others. So any activity that hurts ourselves or others is an opportunity for us to look at it and go, wow, look at what I'm participating in here in, in this moment or in this relationship. And how can, I, how can I shift that and change that? And so to work, and work in the small ways. It's not, it's not fixing it all at one time. There's a wonderful book by uh, M. Scott Peck who wrote The Lo- Road Less Traveled, which was on the New York uh, Times bestseller list for years. Another book he wrote was People of the Lie. And it's, called, it's a book on the hope for healing human evil. The hope for human, healing human evil. And so it's an amazing book. I've, I've loved it, and it's taken me years to get ready to read it. And at the end of the book, the resolutions are all the things that we teach. It's quite fascinating. But he talks about it in a way. And his definition of evil is, as Carl Jung would say, the, the inability to, to live an examined life, to do any introspection, is what they would, would term as evil. And isn't that interesting? Because we think of evil as people like that have done atrocious things on the planet. But when we're not able to engage in meaningful uh, transformation of our own being, then what are, who are we standing with as a tribe? We're standing with the people that are, continue to run as fast as they can in distraction to get to somewhere that's not going to provide any relief. I mean, we all want to live in freedom. And freedom to me is peace. Freedom to me is knowing that we all have enough when we need it at the time. And it's not that we don't celebrate having great abundance in our lives. Of course we do, but not at the cost of our souls. Not giving up part of ourselves to be, you know, one of the things that was given to me years ago is whenever we have to give up a part of ourselves, that true part of ourselves, to maintain a relationship, it's not healthy. And so many of us are, are so good at that because we know that we don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. So Scott Peck wrote, wrote, writes this about this practice, and I find it fascinating because it's exactly what Dima, Pima Chodron is writing. He wrote this in 1982. Pima wrote this last year. The book is called Living Beautifully with Uncertainty and Change. Uh, Pima's book is. This is from the people of the lie. Our capacity to choose change constantly changes, I'm, excuse me, our capacity to choose changes constantly with our practice of life. The longer we continue to make the wrong decisions, the more our heart hardens. The more often we make the right decision, the more our heart softens, or better perhaps, perhaps comes alive. Each step in life which increases my self-confidence, my integrity, my courage, my conviction, also increases my capacity to choose the desirable alternative, until eventually it becomes more difficult for me to choose the undesirable rather than the desirable action. So it's over time. It's bit by bit we find, oh, you know what? I'm not going to do that today. 
I'm not going to do so-and-so's agenda for them in my head and, and sentence them to burn in hell forever. I'm going to find something more productive. I'm going to pick up something inspiring to read. I'm going to do something that is more... Uh, what it provides in the living your life purpose, one of the first agreements we make is what would provide you more freedom? Does this allow you to live in freedom or not? I mean, we can all choose that. Is this going to provide me with more freedom? Or is it going to provide me with more distraction and anxiety and fear and concern? On the other hand, each act of surrender and cowardice weakens me, opens the path for more acts of surrender, and eventually freedom is lost. Between the extremes when I can no longer do a wrong act and the extreme when I have lost my freedom to right action, there are innumerable degrees of freedom of choice. In the practice of life, the degree of freedom to which to choose is different at any given moment. So it's all, we're always changing. We're always shifting. And if the degree of freedom to choose is good, the, choose the good is great, it needs less effort to choose the good. So over time, what happens is we build the capacity. So we're not even there anymore. We, we have built this habitual pattern of, of, of a healthy way of thinking and a healthy way of honoring who we are physically and spiritually and emotionally. And it just becomes who we are. So it's, but we build it over time, and we build it daily through choices. Choices, choices, choices. I mean, we've been given free will. You know, people always say, well, how could God let this happen? God doesn't operate that way. God gave us free will to do whatever we want to do. And we, can, and we can move down the path of negativity and judgment and spin out in that, or we can say, you know what, I'm going to stop myself here. Because what happens when we do that is love becomes more and more present. So, what will your word be in 2016? So I put at the top here, Patrick, stay where your feet are. One of the practices that I was looking at during this week is this practice, this young girl wrote this story and she would use her name. Her name was Aaron, but I used my name. Patrick, stay where your feet are. Don't be futurizing and pasteurizing. Stay where your feet are. And then take some time to breathe a couple times. A couple, a couple breaths. When I live in the past or the future, I miss out on the freedom, the now, the spaciousness. See, this present moment, when we're truly present, there's a spaciousness. My experience of the infinite is more and more peace, less obsessive thinking, and there's a spaciousness that's available. Saving yourself from samsaric neurosis. It's a Buddhist term, samsara, which is this world of effect and the cycles. They, they talk about the cycles of reincarnation included in that. But there's a neurosis around that if we don't bring awareness to it. This is the only realm where we can do this work. This is the only realm in all the realms. Jesus said there are many mansions in my Father's house. This is it. To not escape into our old patterns. To see clearly when, uh, when we're about to exit. The next slide is a, is a, is a representation of a, a clean slate. And I picked courage. Someone shared last week that their word is courage. So courage then, if your word for the year is courage, then courage, whenever you find yourself in, in and so if you affirm this, you're probably going to find yourself in many situations that will demand courage, which can be fearful and anxious. But when all of a sudden you realize, I made a, I made a uh, commitment to courage, so I know I'm supported at every level of this commitment. And I know I have the awareness and I have the mindfulness and I can, find, I can pay attention to when I'm leaving which requires, requires a lot of courage not to leave. Sir Edmund Hillary, next slide. Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay, first men to, to climb Mount Everest in 1953. He was a New, Ze New Zealander. There they are. And so they tried many times. 
They didn't just go there one day and said, we're going. And they get to the top because it wasn't easy. But they tried many times. And there's a great story of Sir Edmund Hillary standing at the base of the mountain and looking and saying, you know, mountain, this is what I know. You aren't getting any bigger. But I'm coming back here next year and I'll be bigger. And he knew that. It wasn't about him shrinking the mountain. It was about him growing a bigger sense of who he was and putting in place all of the wonderful things that would allow him and his team to reach the pinnacle. And so your word, whatever it is this year, this year I want to just emphasize how, how precious and important that can be for you to write this down and look at it on a, on a regular basis, part of your spiritual practice. The only way this is going to shift and change, the conditions can change, if you shift and change. It's not the story. It's not our stories. It's our projectors. Isn't that good to know? I'm getting a new projector this year. It's great. I love it. I'm going to go with the DVD. I might go with 3D in my head. Who knows? I might, whatever there's available, I'm going for it. Because it's part of my story anyway, but it's part of my projector. So I wanted to uh, share with you once again what Robert Bly said so beautifully, or Jimenez said, I am, I am not I. I am this one walking beside me whom I do not see, whom at times I manage to visit, and whom at other times I forget, and who remains silent when I talk, the one who forgives sweet when I hate, and the one who takes a walk where I am not, and the one who remains standing when I die. That is who and what we are. And our opportunity in taking a vow and making a commitment and a pledge to ourselves to live this quality and then bring the mindfulness and the devotion to it throughout the year is an opportunity and a joy. If we truly seek transformation, we start small. And the choices we make today, the choices you make today, the choices I make today. And that's a beautiful thing. Isn't it great to know that? There's no rule book we have to follow other than the fact does it provide freedom and is it harming myself or others? And to operate from that, it's a beautiful thing. Blessings, I'll see you next week.